0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941
1: at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is John Fisher, who is the artistic director of Theater Rhino, Theater Rhinoceros in San Francisco. He also has a one-man show, The History of World War II, which is playing at the Marsh in Berkeley through September 7th, Fridays at 8 p.m., Saturdays 5 p.m., previously played in New York, but also had a long engagement at the Marsh in San Francisco. And unlike shows at the Rhino... This one is directed by someone else, Jerry Metzger, because at the Rhino, you direct yourself. Why do you keep directing yourself? It's the way
0: I've always done things. When I was at the university, when I started directing shows in San Francisco, I wrote, I directed them, and I acted in them. I just have always done that. It's my background. It's it's my way of doing things. But when I did the one-man show, I thought, well, why not have Jerry come in and look at it? And I didn't know what my impulse was. I just thought, ah, maybe I should have... Jerry will get it because it's a one-man show I'm, I'm up there on my own it's not an ensemble I'm not gonna be helped by these other actors and when I direct myself with other actors actually the other actors participate a lot in the directing so I'm not gonna have other people to help me and Jerry the first time I did it I did it without anybody without Jerry and I felt good about it but I thought somebody needs to be watching when did you do it by yourself I did it for just a workshop a theater Rhino workshop and it went over fine, but I thought, you know, somebody should watch this. His additions to it have been brilliant. What did he do? He gave me more blocking. He said, have you thought about going here? Have you thought about going there? Have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about doing that? Remember, you're a little kid in this part. What would a little kid do? It's always been suggestive stuff. There's been very little little like, do this, do that. I mean, he does do, do, do this, do that, but that's only come recently with, a, with with the growth of the relationship. At first it was like, have you thought about this?
1: Have you thought about that? And he's great that way. He's got a wonderful eye. Well, what about the idea then, when you're directing a play at Rhino, that somebody separate directs you?
0: Actually, Jerry just directed me at Rhino. He really? just directed Death Trap, yeah. I played Sidney Bruhl, the evil playwright, and Jerry directed it. Mind you, these are all co-directions. I call them co-directions because I do a lot of the casting still. And I do a lot of this sort of conceiving of the thing, but Jerry is the, he's a great one to sit there and watch. And that was a great experience. I think the idea that I direct all my stuff is sort of overblown. Usually when I do somebody else's work, somebody else is playing a pretty big hand in it. Oftentimes as an assistant director, like when I did Equus and I played um, Martin Dysart, I had an assistant director who did a lot of the direction. But this, I think, has been a unique experience because Jerry is so attuned to the one-man show thing. He really gets it. And he's an incredibly sensitive stage uh, innovator. He's, he's
1: really very clever that way. Is the show at the Berkeley Marsh the same show with the same blocking, same, same monologues, as the one in San Francisco?
0: Essentially, yes. We've cut a little bit of stuff, just things that we felt, you know, just little things here and there. Jerry's added a lot to it. He says, have you thought about this movement-wise? I mean, this is the thing, this when I work with him, I say, I go into the rehearsal process, I said, you know, we're gonna do this again. I think I should be moving a little bit more. And he's like, okay, great. And he thinks of things for me to do. I said, "Uh, how's my articulation? He's like, I'm watching it, I'm on it. So it's like, I might inspire him. I might get him rolling. I think he'd do it anyway. I think it feels a little bit
1: different but essentially it's the same show yeah you write a lot of plays because a lot of them wind up at Rhino did you know from the beginning that this history of World War II, which deals with your own relationship to the history of World War II as well as the history that it was always going to be a one-man show because you create epics anyway I
0: had things to say, and I didn't know how to say them with actors. How do you tell the story of World War II from D-Day to the fall of Berlin with a bunch of actors? It's ridiculous. I mean, you could you could do it, and it'd probably be fine. And I'm a frustrated teacher. I've spent half my life teaching classes here and there. I mean, a lot of classes, but I'm like, I'm a frustrated teacher. I want to teach. But also, I want to talk about my own relationship to this stuff, which is like a little kid that's obsessed with playing war and watching old war movies. I love that stuff. I loved it. I loved it. All those German voices and those German uniforms. I love that stuff. So how do you do that as a play? Impossible, except as a one-man show. And if I was a teacher, I could tell the history, but if I start talking about myself as a little kid, they'd fire my ass. I mean, they would get rid of me like that because a college professor isn't supposed to be talking about his childhood, who cares? So I really thought the one-man play format was the only uh, vehicle, the only delivery system.
1: How did that writing fit in with your work at Rhino? I mean, last year you were two plays, uh, Masterpiece, which was a one-off, and then Action Hero, and you've got one coming up this year. So you're doing a lot of that. You're also directing. You're also the artistic director and have to deal with things like finances as well. How does working on a separate project, a one-person show that will not be a Rhino show, how do you fit that in?
0: Well, I think a lot of us in theater do that stuff. I think like Tony Taccone, Carrie Perloff, they're always working other places. I think we see our careers as uh, global, even though we're essentially, of course, working in San Francisco. Also, I don't have kids. That helps, I, you know, these these are my children, my plays. And I've got a loving husband, but uh, these are the kids. So <laughs> this is what takes up uh, my spare time, what there is of it. And also, I, again, I came into theater rhinoceros as a writer, director, actor, and even producer. I produce my own work. So that's always been in the nature of of my position there. And Theater of Rhinoceros is great. Greatest thing ever in my life. I mean, it, it it's given me a creative outlet and a wonderful source of expression. And um, History of World War II started there. It started there as a workshop. It started there, and Masterpiece, which is my play about the whole uh, Masterpiece Cake. You know about this. The Masterpiece yeah. Cake debacle in the Supreme Court. I love it that the Supreme Court argued this. That was my play about that. And I hope to do that again sometime soon. And God, those Supreme Court transcripts are murder. Have you ever read one of those things? It's all ums and ahs and the most inarticulate crowd of people you've ever heard in your life. I mean, they make their point. It's very interesting. This is is what gives me hope about the Supreme Court. Those people are not all liberal or conservative. They really do talk about this stuff. I have great admiration for those people, even the ones I hate, because listening to them, you realize, well, you know, they are concerned. They are trying to figure it out. So, yeah, I mean, I think anybody in the theater realizes you have to
1: multitask. You have to be doing a lot of different jobs. John Fisher, let's talk a little more about World War II, the history. So you realize you had this in the back of your mind, and then you began researching, or was it all so inculcated? I mean, you've written war plays before. This all
0: came from me. It all came out of my head. The first thing I did was I just dictated it as a stream of a flow of thoughts. It just Into a microphone? or Into a microphone. I just recorded myself and then I transcribed it. Then I started checking it. And a lot of the information was wrong. Some of it was just old because, you know, I've been dealing with this my whole life. So the process was very much just get it out there. That's what concerned me. I was worried that I wouldn't get it out there, right? Because it wasn't a play. I was working with something new. And once I had it on paper, I was able to sort of check it. But I didn't want to get wrapped up in like, is this true? Is this not? You know, because I I, I didn't want to be all about, you know, just precise accuracy. It's about enthusiasm. It's about how war excites you. And I had to get that excitement onto paper before I could start determining, no, it was 5,000, not four. No, it was 5.6 million, not two. So... That came later. I wanted to get the enthusiasm into the microphone and then onto the paper.
1: You're playing yourself as well as, of course, the other different roles, but you have to kind of become John Fisher playing
0: John Fisher. Very well put. And I had great professors in college, great history professors. And what they did was they turned Russian history into themselves. They turned German history into themselves. And these were not dynamic performers. These were professors. So myself is somebody who bounces around and acts like a little kid. That's myself. I act like a little kid on stage. I'm just like a kid bouncing around. These were professors. But the excitement of watching them was you could sense their enthusiasm through their personality expressing this history. They'd been doing it for years. They knew the story they had to tell and they told it beautifully. And so that was really my inspiration. Unlike most of my plays, my inspiration is like, oh, Laurence Olivier, Richard Burton, you know, these famous theater people. No, it's like Professor Zelnick, Professor Sauer, Professor Slotman,
1: Professor Webster, these wonderful professors at UC Berkeley who told these great stories. So then you're just translating that into the audience and throwing in your own little queer thing too. Right.
0: Right. And that's what theater allows me to do. Zelnick could not tell me anything about him. When he died, I read his bio, and he was like this great activist. He was the first professor on the UC Berkeley campus to cross the line in support of the students during all the protests, right? And I knew, who knew this? Why didn't we get that? He was a great UC Berkeley liberal, one of the first and most profoundly influential, and we didn't know that. All we knew about him was Russian history and his jokes. He would make jokes along the way, which were very now and hip and, you know, that's what's bad about teaching at a university is you don't get the personality. You get it, but you don't get the
1: specifics. You don't see where it came from. You bring up a good point, which is that there is some relationship between performance and teaching. The
0: worst (laughs) professor I had in college, the worst, and he's a Pulitzer Prize winning man. He left UC Berkeley and went to an Ivy League school. I won't name his name. He read from his notes. and Somebody had told him wherever he went to college, you have to have jokes. He wrote the jokes into the notes. He was awful. He had no business teaching. He should be writing books and helping PhDs write their dissertation. But He got this huge lecture class at UC Berkeley, and he had no business teaching. The best professors. Professor Selnek sat on his desk and told us about Russian history, and it was mesmerizing. And he was an ultra-liberal. This was at the height of Reaganism. This is when the Russians were shooting down Korean airliners. But you sensed from the way he told us his history, that it was gonna be okay, that the Cold War was something cooked up by the industrial military complex. You've sensed that this was a great people he was talking about and that we as a great people, in quotes, we're gonna work it out
1: with this other great people and it would be fine. Let's switch gears, John Fisher, and let's talk a little about the upcoming season of Rhino. We don't have all of the plays, but you have most of them here. Our season starts very late in the year, so we're still evolving our season. And it's not clear where these are going to play at this
0: point, or do you know? Generally, I know, but again, there's this whole alchemy of putting a season together, so no specifics as yet.
1: And you're still going to be doing some stuff at the Gateway? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you have to coordinate with 42nd Street Moon. Yeah, there are partners in crime. Uh, The Moon is great.
0: Love the Moon. But this season, we're moving back to the Castro. We're doing more shows in the Castro district because I've always felt that the Castro should have a legitimate theater. It's got this famous movie theater, but there's no theater there. There's no legitimate theater. There's bars, there's restaurants, there's this great movie theater. But then it's like, where's the live theater? You've got a neighborhood of gay men. And there's no live theater. Gay men are like performing 24 hours a day. Where's the real live theater? We're doing a lot of our shows in the Castro.
1: And you're doing it at one of two venues, Strut and Sparks?
0: It's called Spark Arts, which is a performance venue in the Castro. And also we do some things at Strut, which has a performance space. So this is my effort to project us into the Castro. Ultimately, I'd like to have our own theater there. There's this wonderful revivalist church. I think it's a fundamentalist church right on market at Noe, which has been dormant forever. And I want to get Raphael Mandelman to buy that theater for us and put the Rhino in the Castro. Then we'll have gay theater in the Castro.
1: Uh, Let's talk a little about these shows. Driven, it's a Filipino-American uh, gay Filipino American and the relationship with his father
0: it's a beautiful play and it's about a guy who goes to Hollywood and is really struggling with trying to make it in Hollywood and he comes back to help his father and his father put him through graduate school at Yale at the MFA School of Drama at Yale and his father has a gambling problem and so here are two people struggling with issues. Uh, one being queer and single, the other uh, a middle-aged man who uh, has a gambling problem and has to go back to work at a big box factory because he, he, he has to support his gambling debt and how they help each other. It's like that old Russell Crowe movie, uh, that old Australian movie about the guy with his father, the gay father. It's really kind of a wonderful story about connecting with your father. You mentioned that the Fantastics, is that for sure? I think the Fantasties is something we're working on. Uh, the Fantasties is is that wonderful musical, Try to Remember the Kind of September. That beautiful musical, that haunting musical about families. And I think it needs to be queered. So that's
1: something that mm, I'm pretty sure we're going to do. So the, the lovers become both, both men.
0: Or both women. Still gay to be lesbian. And also the fathers. And also El Gallo, who's the... Um, the man who brings them together. That's something that we'd like to queer. Also, uh, we're gonna be doing the Scottish play, which I've always been convinced is a queer play, that the Scottish king, MacBee is a gay guy. And that explains a lot, this weird relationship he has with his wife. Also, I'm gonna write a play, or I'm working on a play called Straight Eye, which it has to do a lot with, well, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. That's the inspiration. This is Straight Eye for the Queer Guy. But the commodification of what it means to be queer and how gay men are both
1: becoming um, normalized and also being seen as a commodity. That's interesting you mentioned that because I had visitors over Pride Weekend. Uh, My best friend and his partner, who was Thai, and they live, the two of them live in Thailand, came over here and Thai partner had never been to America. At the beginning of the the, um, march, if you remember, there was a sit-down which kept the parade from happening for an hour protesting the commercialization of the parade. And my Thai friend too mentioned, and we didn't know about this at the time, we just were delayed, he kept saying, why is everything so commercial? Why is this so commercial? He noticed it, as did another friend from LA. Two things, we were in the parade. We were at the very
0: front of the parade as one of the oldest queer institutions in the world. And it was a celebration of all the institutions that went back to the 70s that had started activism, protest. So we're at the front of the parade and everybody in our contingent is complaining, oh my God, these people are protesting and stopping the parade. I'm like, isn't that why we're here? (laughs) To celebrate right the Stonewall Riots parade. I mean, this is perfect This is supposed to be a celebration of Stonewall and here we have it again Secondly, my husband and I were in Jerusalem for the Queer Pride Parade Israeli's Queer Pride Parade Richard there was no corporate anything none. There were no floats. There was no music. There was no uh, Kaiser Permanente queers. There was no PG&E queers. There was nothing. It was just people marching through Jerusalem. And the the, the theme of the march was protesting the violence. A lesbian had been killed in the pride parade two years before, and it was a protest against violence against queers. And there were 30,000 of us marching through Jerusalem silently. There was no disco music thumping. And all we were doing was marching in solidarity against violence towards queers. And there were signs, sub-protesting, but it was all protest. And I said to my husband, I said, do you see the sign that we happen to be marching with? And we looked over and it was a pr- the people we happened to be marching with. It was, it was protesting circumcision. <laughs> so I have marched through Jerusalem protesting circumcision in a parade that had no corporate presence. It was like being reborn. There was almost nobody watching this thing it was everybody who was interested in jerusalem was, was in the march was in the march and i tell you the only thing that was weird about it was i've never seen so much such an intense police and military presence they were everywhere they're pretty much the only people watching it they were like crawling protecting us which was actually something it was actually i guess i guess this is good so yeah he's right i mean that's something that the rest of the world i think is still in touch with queerness as activism, as opposed to commodification. In this country, we commodify uh, minority groups. We commodify whatever they bring. Their fabulousness, their their rap, their disco. We commodify minorities, and that's good. That's the, the, the joy of culture, the energy of culture, but I think it also takes away from the activism, which is always important. How far along on the play are you? Well, I mean, a lot of it is just sort of gathering stuff and watching stuff and thinking about stuff. I'm in the early stages, but it really gets down to somebody who begins to realize that they are being manipulated, utilized for sort of a commodification purpose. And that's not why they they became an activist. They became an activist to, like, find the next plane of discussion of activism.
1: John Fisher... You write a lot of plays, and you've taught playwriting. If someone wants to write a play, and they're going, I think I would like to try playwriting, what would be the first thing they should do? I think the the thing you
0: have to teach yourself is discipline. And I think uh, the best way to get to discipline is setting yourself a goal of, I'm going to write this much. I don't think the ideas are so much of a problem. A lot of people are like, I have this great idea. So great. I think what you have to do is tell yourself, I'm going to write and start simple. I'm going to write an hour a day. Why not? And I'm going to sit and I'm going to write. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to have the TV on. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do research. Oh, I should research this. No, you're just going to write. That's all you're going to do. You're going to write. I think you also have to get over your gag reflex. You have, to stop, you have to get over this thing which is like, oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Your brain's gonna tell you that's bad or it shouldn't be this way or that's not how Woody Allen would have done it. This is a Woody Allen story and he wouldn't have done it that way. You gotta just write. You gotta stop telling, you gotta get rid of those voices in your head. So those are my ideas. I think your inspiration's already there. I think you already know what you wanna write. Now you have to sit down and write it and write. How do you know if it's a play or a novel? That's a very good question. I mean, a lot of plays these days are novels and a lot of novels are plays. Uh, A lot of my favorite writers like Armistead Maupin Writes a lot of dialogue. He should probably be writing plays and screenplays. A lot of plays on stage. There's a lot of um, monologuing, you know, a lot of one man shows probably are novels. So I'm not sure how you determine that. I mean, I think the idea is that if it's dialogue, it should be a play. But a play has to have a lot of action.
1: Does a play answer a question or ask it?
0: Well, the Ibsenian play asks a big question it asks a question, the classic play asks a question. And then I think it provides an answer, but it lets the audience think, well, maybe there's another answer. In other words, I think, yes, you should ask a question and then you should give a soft answer because that gives closure. But really, is Scarlet gonna get Rhett back? Is that really gonna happen? Is Judy really going to stay on the farm? Is that really going to happen? Yes, she decides the farm's where she belongs. Yes, Rhett is going to go back to Scarlet. But really? <laughs> you have to treat your audience like they're intelligent. So your answer to the question has to be equivocal. You know, real life is often about, and I think this is wisdom as you get older, real life is often about, well, let's see what happens. Let's not take action. You don't necessarily always have to take action in life. Most things have their own solution built into them. Or if you wait a little longer, the solution's gonna present itself with a lot more clarity than what you're operating on when you're operating from a place of emotion or panic or desperation. Um, As I said, Ibsen's characters take action. Do they have to? Would the plays be any more diminished if they didn't? I'm not sure. The journey is really what a play is about.
1: John Fisher, for you, If you're facing an end of a play where a character has to do A or B, would you have the character make the choice?
0: It depends entirely on the circumstances. Oftentimes, I don't. Oftentimes, uh, the character doesn't make a choice. Oftentimes, the character clearly makes the wrong choice. In my last play about Hollywood, Action Hero... The character sold out. He spent the whole play saying, you know, I can't deal with all the closets in Hollywood, all the kind of crummy product. I can't do that. But then he had an opportunity to be in a huge movie with two lines. And he finally says the last two lines of the play were this character saying, "Okay, what are the lines? I mean, as if the lines could be so brilliant that they would make two lines in a major movie worthwhile. And yet his character had the whole time before this – insane saying I don't want to be involved in all this why did you make that choice I think the temptation is just overwhelming I think for Americans for us in entertainment opportunities are are so hard to come by that when they do come I just think it's out of our hands would you I would, but I usually screw it up. Uh, I've had many opportunities, and I've said yes, but in the wrong way. I, I would screw it up. I'd say yes, and then I would just get too enthusiastic, and they'd be like, "This guy, I don't want to work with this guy. He's like a juggler. He's like a he's like he's in the circus." And they, you know, so yes, of course, I would sell out, but I do it wrong. I protect myself from selling out because I always blow it somehow.
1: When I've seen a number of your plays, they're epics. And before we uh, turned on this microphone, we were talking about movies and I would mention this movie or that movie and you've seen them all but movies have you wanted to do movies oh of course everybody in theater wants to do movies everybody
0: in theater wants to be a movie star I mean yeah of course we all just want to do movies movies are so complicated though I think I think it's our vanity that we could just slip into a movie I've been doing a lot of filming I've been making a lot of like little movies and commercials and industrials lately um I have an agent and it's a whole different thing. And wonderful, of course. But I think the best thing I've gotten from movies is inspiration. You say epic. And, you know, when my dinner with Andre came out, I was like, yeah, that's great. I love it. I love it. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But I'm like, it's, come on. Come on. Where I are mean, the battleships? Where's the desert? I mean, Where are they, the
1: camels? Come on. Three quarters of your plays are Dr. Zhivago, you know.
0: I know. I mean, I'm just like. Uh, I'm just like, come on. I mean, I want to do Reservoir Dogs. I want to do, you know, we are talking about the human condition. I mean, come on. And so I just, I get frustrated with movies that are people talking to each other around a dinner table. I get frustrated with them for half an hour and then I
1: relax and enjoy it. But I'm just like, oh my God, that is not why I'm here. Well, what about a play? I mean, the best part of August Osage County is exactly that people sitting around the dinner table.
0: Well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. The great thing about that play is the amount of action. That is a beautifully written play because the set is this house, and you keep cutting back and forth between the rooms. And the most exciting scenes are action scenes when the when the girl smashes the child molester in the face with a pan, when the daughter takes charge and shoves her mother onto the couch and says, "I'm running things now." I mean, these are just like right—they're just ripped right out of Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, that is just like yes, the big scene is people sitting around the dinner table and the mother being incredibly abusive, and then the guy finally saying to her, "You know, don't, yeah, just you know, just stop." You might be on to all of us, but I'm on to you. There's nothing you can say. But that is in many ways action as dialogue because it's so pointed. And that's what I mean by a play has to have a lot of action. It can't rely on just people talking to each other. It's gotta be heightened dialogue. It's gotta feel it's gotta have dialogue that feels like
1: it's a visual action. Let's go back to World War Two for a second. Yeah. Okay. So you're creating this. And you're acting in it, and you're looking for inspiration. What are, for you, the great war movies that inspired John? Oh, Fisher? Th- th- you see, that's the problem. They're all great.
0: This is. I have no. I'm like. I'm like a Catholic. I just believe. I believe. I'm an Orthodox. I believe. They're all great. There's never been a bad war movie. There's bad wars, and they generate bad movies uh, Vietnam War there are very few good Vietnam War movies even the ones they say are good aren't that good uh, Apocalypse Now? that movie's got a lot of problems it's got a lot of problems when you hear people talk about how much they love that movie they're talking about very isolated parts of that movie Brando Robert Duvall they're talking about very isolated parts of that movie I don't want to diss Francis Francis is a good guy Francis is Francis, is Francis. he did The Godfather I'm not going to diss Francis so I don't want to talk about that movie um, but A great war like World War II only created great movies. You can't do bad by World War II because the villains are so clear, but they're also sexy. That's the problem. The Nazis are so well-dressed. That's what my show's about. The Nazis like walk away with the well-dressed
1: award in those movies, but they're villains. They're awful. They're awful, awful, awful. Well, that's what makes something like Young Lions or Human Condition where you're looking at the other side and there are the villains even are going to die.
0: Even that's compelling. Even that's compelling to see the psychology. And that goes back to the Persians, to that wonderful Greek play about looking at the villains. And even the villains, that goes back to the tradition of all great wars. If it's a great war, like the Peloponnesian War, it can only make great theater. If it's an ambiguous war like Vietnam, you're in trouble. World War I, you're in trouble. What about something like Hurt Locker? Well, I think our ambiguity about all those conflicts has actually generated... Three Kings is, a, is, a, is my favorite from all those, those colonial wars. Hurt Locker, good, good. Three Kings, better. Because it's an adventure. It's Kelly's heroes. Uh, we're going to get some money. So I think if you cast selfish people into the middle of a war an ambiguous war, you're going to tell a better story about that ambiguous war. Our colonial wars right now are going to generate some good film and theater because I think we understand ourselves better as we're going through it. Vietnam is never going to make anything good. There's not. It's never going to be anything good. Okay, I'll give you Apocalypse Now if you talk about it as a Conrad story filmed. I won't give it to you as a Vietnam War movie. I'm sorry, no. What about Platoon? Salvador's about... I'm only going to talk po- positive because Stone is the man. Salvador is a much much better movie, much better movie, and JFK is a much better movie than Born on the Fourth of July. That war, no, no, you can't. It's it's a that war's bad. Nobody should touch that war. It's a bad war to do fiction on. It's just a bad war. Vietnam is bad war. Boring. The big problem with Vietnam, there are no battles. There are no battles. It's the American Revolution in Vietnam. Those people figure out guerrilla warfare. There are no battles. You need big battles. You can't, you can't, there's no battles in the Vietnam. It's a horrible war.
1: Well, curiously, there are no good uh, Revolutionary War movies. It's something like The Patriot isn't a very good movie. Patriot is... No, I'm sorry. No, no, Patriot's a good movie. You think? No, no, I, 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 it just is. How about Civil War? Uh, I guess the one with Denzel Washington...
0: Eh, glory is okay better 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 i mean no not better out of the ballpark is good bad and the ugly again if you don't know what to do with an ambiguous war put a bunch of selfish people in the middle of it trying to get some gold right that's the best way to handle an ambiguous war because it's like three kings it's like the selfishness makes sense it's like this war sucks so we're going to turn it into an opportunity sergio leone understands america better than any american ever did his movies about
1: America are spot on, and they were shot in Spain. The best movie of World War I would probably be All Quiet on the Western Front, and it's from the German perspective. Pretty good, pretty good. Kubrick's movie is pretty good. Paths of Glory...
0: What are we talking about? What are we talking about? Lawrence of Arabia is the well, best yeah. World War One movie because nobody knows about that aspect. And again, it's complete selfishness. It's a psychopath trying to become famous, trying to make a name for himself and u- utilizing the Arab uprising as an excuse. Again, if you don't know what to do with a bad war, just, just put a selfish person at the center of it trying to get the gold. And that's, that's all Lawrence of Arabia is.
1: Well, what about the Russian Revolution? You've got Dr. Zhivago and that you've movie. got Reds. Reds is a great idea for a movie. Those interviews are
0: brilliant. They are brilliant. And handsome Warren Beatty. Yeah, Maureen Stapleton. it. Reds is a mess. It's like, it's a mess. It's just, that's not the great and, Warren Beatty movie. And Zhivago a bigger mess. Listen, I don't want to diss these people. Lean's the greatest. So let's talk about what they did right. Let's talk about Warren Beatty, what he did right. Bullworth is a great movie. Bullworth is, you're right. Yeah. It's a solid ass movie. It talks about a lot of things that we continue to struggle talking about with politics uh, to, to this day. Um, So, oh, well, of course, Beatty's, Beatty's masterpiece is uh, Parallax View, you know, which is the best movie by Kennedy ever. And it's not about Kennedy, but it's, yeah. So I, I admire him in Reds. I've tried to like it. The Russian Revolution is a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. And I'm not saying that it was wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong, that the revolution itself was wrong, or that Lenin was an inspired man. But he brought about, I mean, he basically just created another czar, which was Stalin, and now they just have czars. Year of Living Dangerously, is that a war
1: movie even?
0: Yeah, really. Yeah, it's about journalists. And it's not the best journalists and war movie out there, though. I think that has to go to Salvador again. And maybe, um, what's, the, what's the one with Gene Hackman, Under Fire? That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. But Salvador, you know, if, if you want to know about Oliver Stone, watch Salvador. He just had that bit in his teeth. And it starts in San Francisco. What could be better? But he had the bit in his teeth. And that great actor. What's that actor's name?
1: James Woods. Oh, James Woods. Oh, my God. A person, apparently. Well,
0: who cares? <laughs> I mean, he was, he had it. He had the bit in his teeth. That's a great movie. How many plays are you writing right now? I only really write a play when I know it's going to happen. So I don't have like 15 plays that I'm working on. I have ideas and I've got a lot of plays that have never been produced that I think should be produced. I wrote a play about Maria Callas, but I don't want to put it on because I want somebody with a ton of money to hire, you know, like Natalie Portman to play Maria Callas. You know, I, I, there are plays I wrote that I'm just not going to do because they're not my, you know, my rough-and-tumble type of theater stuff. They're like, you know, they need to, you, know, you like need somebody to, who's going to be Maria Callas. So I've got a lot of those. Uh, I'm working on uh, this. History of uh, World War II, we actually filmed and are going to edit it. So we're turning that into a little movie. And then I'm going to do it in Los Angeles in October. So those are the things that are on the horizon at a wonderful theater in Hollywood, actually. So uh, those are the
1: things on the media horizon. Uh, I saw that Medea the Musical was on HBO or a small segment of that. It was part of the HBO Comedy Festival when it was done. And they filmed it. Yeah. The whole
0: thing. Yeah, they filmed it. I don't know where that is. I don't know who's got that. I don't know what they're doing with it. But it was filmed for HBO. This, this performance was so stupid. There are these huge cameras right in front of the stage. And then the audience had to sit behind the cameras so the audience was like silent through the whole thing. You know, that the cameras ruin things. So I'm assuming they just like looped in the laughs. But you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, people don't laugh when they, all they're looking at is the back of a cameraman's
1: head. It was so weird. Comedy festivals are the weirdest things. The history of World War II uh, is at the Marsh in Berkeley through September 7th, Fridays 8 p.m., Saturdays 5 p.m., And for more information, you can go to themarsh.org. The full Rhino schedule, where it's going to be, comes out in a couple months, I guess. Yeah, end of August. And that's therhino.org.